Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. So what brand do you remember making the first impact on you as a young kid in Hawaii? Oh, man. (laughs) I think the first brand that I encountered and learned and respected and loved was Sears. Because you go to Sears and they had the highest quality stuff and they had craftsman tools and you could return stuff to Sears if the tool broke or something broke and no questions asked. And I mean, Sears was Nordstrom before there was Nordstrom. And so I think Sears was... It's kind of sad that they no longer exist, but, and then, oh my God, getting that catalog and, you know, man, I was, I was just primed for Amazon because I looked (laughs) at Sears catalogs for years. So I think it was Sears. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Guy Kawasaki, an author, advisor, investor, entrepreneur, and self-described evangelist for people and companies he believes in. One of Guy's many claims to fame is that he was an early employee at Apple, Guy left the company in 1987 and returned again in 1995. After a degree from Stanford and an MBA from UCLA Anderson, Apple was indeed a springboard for Guy's launch into his most interesting life, starting companies in software and other emerging fields, writing 15 books, advising large companies like Motorola and Mercedes-Benz, and most recently, serving as the chief evangelist for the Sydney-based online design services company, Canva. This is my wide-ranging conversation with Hawaiian-born and raised Guy Kawasaki. Welcome, Guy, to the CMO Podcast. You have such a varied and eclectic career, and so did your dad. Do you ever feel like you're standing on his shoulders or following in his footsteps? I am not following in his footsteps because he went into politics, and that is something I will never do. So, no, I'm not following in his, in his footsteps, but I definitely am standing on his shoulder. Uh, and not just my dad. My mom and dad, they sacrificed a lot so that I would have a good education. The good education led me to meet some people at Stanford, and those people then brought me into Apple, and the rest is history. So my, the arc of my life would be very different if I had not moved to the mainland. Yeah. So you describe yourself as an evangelist, as an author and a speaker. So what are you evangelizing right now? Right now? 
I am evangelizing Canva, which is an online graphics design service. I am also evangelizing my podcast, which is called Remarkable People. And those two things and my kids keep me very busy. Yeah, I've listened to your podcast. It's, it's super. It's outstanding. Thank you. What's the most important thing in your life that you've evangelized? In my life? Mm-hmm. Well, it's either Macintosh or Canva. Um, you know, Canva has, I think, 60 or 70 million active users now. And, well, Macintosh. But at some point, you know, I was with the Macintosh division of Apple in 1983 to 1987. So it's, it would be, shall I say, unfair to continue to take any kind of credit for Macintosh's continued success. I had absolutely nothing to do with iOS. So now those two things, um, it was a great start to a career and Canva is a great end to a career. Well, I'd like to talk about both of those, actually. Let's go to the beginning. You actually started at Apple the same year I started at P&G, which is interesting. Oh, really? In yeah. Cincinnati? Yeah. Well, you had better ice cream and chili. Yeah, we did. Yeah, and ribs, too. So. And ribs. <laughs> it's a surprisingly good food town. But we started about the same time. I'd like you to talk a bit about the influence of those early days on you and how they shape the guy of today. I would actually need to go back a little further because prior to working for Apple, uh, believe it or not, my first real job was working for a jewelry manufacturing company. And that jewelry manufacturing company, we sold to retailers. And so it was hand-to-hand combat. And I learned how to sell. That selling skill was very important to becoming a Macintosh evangelist where I had to sell Macintosh we use the word evangelism, but I had to sell Macintosh to developers so that they would buy into the dream of increased productivity and creativity. So at Apple, I learned the bulk of the lessons for the rest of my career, honestly. How did you go from a jewelry company to Macintosh? Well, the one-word answer is nepotism, which is to say that my college buddy hired me into the Macintosh division and. On paper, I had neither the right educational background nor, coming from the jewelry business, the right professional background. Uh, besides that, I was the perfect candidate. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I am living proof that nepotism can work. I'm probably a better example of that than the Trump family. And what I learned is that it's not how you get into a job. It's what you do once you get into the job. And I think that works both ways, that you, know, you can get in because of your qualifications and your LinkedIn profile, et cetera, et cetera, but then you can be a total failure. You could also get in because of nepotism and the lack of the perfect LinkedIn profile, but you can deliver results and thrive. Both things can happen. What do you think your friends saw in you back then to ask you to join Apple at the, <laughs> Hell if the I 80s? Know. <laughs> We were young and stupid then. Um, I, I think he figured out that, or he assumed that I had some kind of uh, sales and marketing and you know, sort of persuading people kind of skills. I will tell you, though, that on paper, <laughs> you definitely would have to scratch your head. Uh, the story goes that 
after I was interviewed by the Mac division, I, I was not right for the first job. So I didn't get the first job. The second job was the evangelist job. And uh, as the story goes, uh, my friend, Mike Boych, the one who hired me, asked Steve, you know, what did you think of Guy? And Steve's uh, just enthusiastic response was, he's okay, but if he screws up, I'm going to fire you too. So, so that was that was old school my, management style that, yeah that was my ringing endorsement yeah if you think about your you, you were at apple twice right you left and came back yes and i'd like you to direct your comments to the cmos who are listening and we have a, a lot of cmos who listen to this mm -hmm. show so what would you say to them in their roles today what advice would you give them from what you learned? I know it was early, but it was yeah. obviously the germination of a trillion-dollar company. So what did you learn there that would help CMOs of today in the various well, jobs they have? Well, if I'm being honest, which I should be, right, uh, I would say that there is not much to learn from the Apple example for most CMOs because Apple was just an aberration. And I think that if you try to draw too many parallels from Apple, you will shoot yourself in the foot. And uh, it's very difficult from the outside looking in, trying to attribute uh, practices or procedures or anything and say, okay, this is what Apple did. This is what we should do. And I think that is a very dangerous path. Um, so the major difference is that there has been as far as I'm concerned, only one Steve Jobs. Now, the closest analog to Steve Jobs is probably Elon Musk. So let's call it, let's say Elon Musk is equal to a Steve Jobs. So there's been two. So the probability that the CMO listening to this either is or works for a, a Steve Jobs or Elon Musk type of person is extremely low. <laughs> So with all those caveats, but I, I will tell you that I think that the key to marketing that I learned from Apple is that you have to have a great product. And if you have a great product, everything gets easy. And if you have a product that sucks, everything gets hard. And so now this is kind of a duhism, right? Because every CMO is saying, I have a great product, but that's bullshit. It's just not true. And so, um, you know, in a sense, the, the marketing of Macintosh, as is the marketing of Canva, is not that hard because <laughs> the products are so great. So I guess if you're a CMO, you really want to challenge, go find a sucky product. But um, if you're a masochist, to be the chief masochist officer, uh, I'd say find, affiliate, or create a great product. And, and, and that I admit, that sounds like a duhism because no CMO wakes up in the morning saying, if only I could find a piece of shit to market, you know, that's what I'm looking for. I know that's not true, but I'll give you a, a mental model. So this is a two-by-two two matrix, and I'm not McKinsey, so I'm not going to charge you $5 million for it. But on the vertical axis, let's measure the degree of differentiation. And on the horizontal axis, let's measure the degree of value. So if you are high and to the right, and I'm not talking politics or drugs, if you are high and to the right, it means that you have a very differentiated product that is very valuable. That's the holy grail of marketing. A more recent example than Macintosh is, of course, 
iPhone, iPod, iPad. So you think about it, you know, when the iPod came out, it was unique and valuable. It had a wide selection of music, a user interface that a mere mortal could operate. The music was legal and inexpensive, 99 cents a song. There was no product like that in the market. And so it was unique. And then it was valuable because people wanted to carry thousands of songs around. So, you know, that qualifies. So I guess what I'm saying to a CMO is, you know, can you honestly say that your product is unique and valuable? And if you can, you're in the, the golden corner. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website. And then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. You've been in a lot of companies, Guy. That's your life. Which product companies do you admire? That is a short list. Um, obviously, Apple, although we could go down and I could tell you all the reasons I have admired it less <laughs> but um, obviously i admired apple why have you admired it less because i think that it has become a fashion brand as opposed to a technology leader platform and i i just look at you know, some of the decisions that they've made now every iphone is slightly better faster cheaper more cameras, more storage, whatever, right? I mean, it, it's that ilk. But, you know, I, I don't know about you, but it's been a long time. Well, I never did it, but it's been a long time since anybody has stood in line at an Apple store at midnight to get the next thing in the morning, right? So mm -hmm. um, now that may be too high a bar, but it certainly is true that we don't do that anymore because iPhone 14 will be, you know, slightly better than iPhone 13, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's that. Uh, I think that you know, if Apple truly wants to last forever, then it has to be creating something to the iPhone and the Macintosh, what the Macintosh was to the Apple II. And I don't know if that's happening. It's not obvious to me if it is happening. And so that's what disappoints me. And then I also think that Apple has um, a lack of empathy that. I think they find it difficult to put themselves in the shoes of their customers. Now, I fully realize that maybe this is true only for me or only for a very small group of people, but until the recent MacBook, you know, you had to ask yourself, so Apple, you know, why does the most powerful MacBook have three USB ports? Do you ever have to load pictures via an SD card? Do you ever have to print to a, a serial printer that's not wireless? Do you ever have to hook up your MacBook to a Rodecaster Pro or a ATM Mini 
or to get HDMI out of a camera because I'll tell you something. My dongle has a dongle. Now, how, how can that be? Now, again, I may be the only in the tenth of a percent that's true, but I don't know. I know a lot of people who they're just sick of carrying dongles. Yeah, my dongles have dongles too, and they're all like 70 bucks each. Right. Well, it's not even the money. I mean, it's just, it's, it's an affront to design. Like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe Jonathan Ive and maybe Tim Cook, they have people who record for them, download for them, edit for them, uh, charge for them. I mean, maybe, you know, in their planes, they have this, but the rest of us, like right here, I'm looking at it and I have a label printer. I have a Rodecaster Pro. I have a Sony hooked up, um, and I have to have power, right? <laughs> so we're rapidly running out of stuff here. Um, and, and I like to have a corded mouse because God knows Bluetooth is not infallible. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, I think that's just a lack of empathy. And uh, I also think that as a company gets to be larger and larger and more and more successful, it should take the high road. And uh, I, I don't see Apple necessarily taking the high road. Um, they, take, they take the road that is lucrative. And again, I mean, that, you know, God bless them. They're a trillion-dollar company. What can I say? What but do you mean by the high road? There are parts of Apple that cannot talk to other parts of Apple, right? Or at least this is what they tell me. And uh, you know, that's a little bizarre. And uh, that, you know, I, like I bet every employee has not been in the, the headquarters that, that flying saucer headquarters and stuff like that. And, uh, now, listen, I, I, you know, who am I to criticize <laughs> a trillion dollar company? But um, I, I would not say that the emperor is fully clothed. Yeah. So the, I'm glad we went there. Talk about other companies that you admire from a product perspective. From a product perspective, I admire the hardware of Sony, I do, uh, cameras. I do not admire the software of Sony cameras. I swear that they must have engineers who sit down and say, how can we make this user interface the most counterintuitive user interface and menu system? But their hardware is to die for. So there's that. Um, I can, can I give you some examples that are probably off your radar and you might consider yeah, absolutely. ridiculous? We would love to hear examples that you see in that top quadrant that are really, really terrific on differentiation and value. Okay. So one example is Meter, M-E-A-T-E-R. Uh, and what Meter is, is a Bluetooth thermometer for cooking. So you pair your meter thermometer and you stick it in your turkey, your chicken, or your steak. And you stick it in your barbecue and it tells you, you know, you say, okay, so it's a, it's a, it's a turkey breast and it suggests 160 degrees or whatever. And then you stick it in there, stick it in the barbecue, and then it tells you, okay, so right now the temperature is 60 degrees, the goal is 160 degrees, and the ambient temperature, i.e. the temperature outside the bird, is 250. And then it tells you, you know, calculating 43 minutes to do this, 38 minutes, it says, get ready, in five minutes, you got to pull it out. And so it's almost impossible to not have a perfect chicken, turkey, or cut of meat with this meter thermometer. And this, it's, 
as far as I'm concerned, it's kind of the a best perfect thing. product. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think I have one of those. I'm ashamed to say I'm not. We just had Thanksgiving yeah. uh, a, a little while back at my son's home, and they have a new Traeger. And I have yeah. to say, that was pretty flawless. What, wait, what's a Traeger? It's an electric smoker. Yeah. And he was getting messages on his phone as we watched football and took walks, and it came out perfect on time, <laughs> just when it said it would. And you know, I remember it. And if I were in the if I were in the market for a smoker, I'd get one. Yeah. Isn't it just delightful when you can encounter a product like that? I'm all about products. I just want you to do one thing really well. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. the kind of the history of companies, if they do one thing really, really well, they typically do very well on Wall Street. Because yeah, they understand what they do and they value it and they get really good at it and it's hard to replicate that. Yeah, yeah. So your career, it's, summarizing it is a bit of a challenge. You've worked, <laughs> you've worked for and with big companies. You've started a bunch of companies. You yep. advise companies. You write, you speak, you podcast. Canva's your latest passion. So I'd like you to talk about that career a bit in terms of what's the red thread in it? <laughs> <laughs> the, there, uh, there is no red thread. If, if you pulled that red thread, I'd fall apart. Um, <laughs> I, I cannot tell you that at any point in my life, I planned out really anything. Um, so listen, so I was born and raised in Hawaii. As an Asian American, your parents wanted you to be a doctor, lawyer, or dentist. So I go to Stanford. I take a pre-med class that involved walking around the Stanford Hospital on rounds with doctors, okay? The first day I'm in that class, I faint. So that (laughs) took medicine off the table. And then I said, okay, so there's dentistry. But then the thought of just sticking your hand in people's mouths for the rest of your lives, highest rate of suicide, I took that off the table. Now, my father was a legislator. He made laws. So the next thing was law school. So I went to law school. And I went to law school for two weeks and I couldn't stand it. So I quit. What about it? Couldn't you stand? I just, I did not, I was not secure enough in my personal ability to withstand the constant, um, you know, you're a piece of crap. We're going to remake your mind kind of, I don't know. I just, I just wimped out if, if you want to look at it that way. And so, uh, but I, I had always been interested, well, not always, but I had been interested in tech, in business. And so... The following year, I went to UCLA to get an MBA. And while I was in the UCLA MBA program, which is a a four-day-a-week program, the fifth day is free, and uh, we don't come from a wealthy family, so I took a job, and the job that I happened to take was counting diamonds for a jewelry manufacturer, and then that's where I went after the MBA. So, you know, there's no clear shot from, okay, born and raised in Hawaii, you go into the jewelry manufacturing business. That makes perfect sense in downtown L.A., then from the jewelry manufacturing business, I really love tech. So I got a short job at a software company before Apple started recruiting me. So I went from a jewelry company to a software company very briefly, maybe six months. And then I got into tech. And in tech, I really fell in love. The first time I used an Apple II and a word processor and a spreadsheet and a database, I mean, it was you know coming from a Selectric typewriter, white mm-hmm. correcting tape, to word processing, yep. I mean, that removed the scales from my eyes. So I'm working at Apple, and then I decide to um, 
leave to start a Macintosh software company. And then I, that didn't work out very well. So then I was a writer and a speaker and then Apple recruited me to become an Apple fellow and chief evangelist. I go back, I leave that to start a venture capital firm. I, I wish I could tell you that there was a plan. There was never a plan. It's just, I fell in love with stuff. Um, I fell in love with podcasting two years ago. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't like I made a calculation like, okay, for the next stage of your career, in order to accomplish these goals, you need to be a podcaster. I just fell in love with podcasting. What do you love about podcasting? There's not much that I don't love. So I love the preparation for an interview. I love the interview itself because I feel that's a very intellectually challenging time. Um, that you have to be very quick on your feet and you have to react to what someone says and you have no idea what they're going to say. And uh, so you, there's both the preparation. I spend a few hours preparing for every interview and I write down my questions and then you just have to go with it, right? And I think that is really, you're on the firing line. And then I love the editing process. So I don't know about you, but when I get a one-hour interview, I probably spend two hours editing and and then it goes to other people and a sound designer. So there's probably five or six hours of editing in each one of my one hour things. And I know there are many people who say, no, we're going to just simulate real life. I turn on the recorder and if the person says, uh, um, or the, or well, 250 times, which ha- happens quite often, yeah. right? I wipe all those out, but many people believe, no, you should be true to life and just play it as it is. I don't believe that. And so there's a lot of editing, which I enjoy. I enjoy the editing of writing and I enjoy the editing of audio. And then uh, I love the, I have very enthusiastic listeners who love um, my take on stuff. And I have a very unusual podcast in the sense that I probably do five to 10% of the talking and 90% of the talking is the guest. And that is not true for most mm-hmm. podcasts. Yeah. So how am I doing so far, Guy? Well, I, you're letting me do 90% of the talk. So. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> no, I also, I agree with everything you said. I've been doing this about two and a half years. Yeah. And uh, I love getting into someone's life. Yeah. You know, to step out of your life and into someone else's to learn about them, as you say, for half a day of preparation, and then to go live with it. I just think it's endlessly inspiring and interesting. I'll give you a great story. So uh, I interviewed someone named Mark Manson. He wrote the book, The the Art of, The Subtle Art or The Art of Not Giving a F You, you know, okay? So he wrote this great book. And he gave me one of the best insights in all of my podcasts, which is, you know you're onto something when it is a shit sandwich that you enjoy eating. <laughs> okay? So I think the, the editing of a podcast, when someone in my podcast goes, you know, that I take those out. And I mean, it is, you got to like, I use the script, so it's not that hard, but it's, you know, you take it out. It's, I don't think many podcasters do that kind of thing, but I do. and so. It is a shit sandwich doing all that, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's a shit sandwich that I love. So I know I'm onto something because I love doing the podcast shit sandwich. Yeah. And I think you, in, in respect to the listener, I think it is, we also take all of that out 
and we condense it and we and we make it really enjoyable to listen to, right? You yeah. want a really delightful experience. And I think when you leave a lot of that stuff in, it's not a delightful experience for many people. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, how does Joe Rogan have six million listeners? I mean, uh, <laughs> I I can't explain that. I mean yeah. I, <laughs> There's always an exception, right? I guess so. For a lot of people, he's in that top box. I he he must be. More people. He's in that top box for more people than I am. So yeah. what can I say? Yeah. Yeah. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. When did you discover what you were really good at? Uh, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> when did the when did the self-awareness thing kick in to say this is where I think I I met my best and I want to be at my best more and therefore I want to do XYZ? Well, I would say that Maybe the most recent and most obvious one is podcasting. I truly do believe I was born to podcast. I wish I had taken it up five years earlier. Then Joe Rogan would be wondering, how does Guy Kawasaki have six million <laughs> subscribers? But uh, no, I, I think my, in a sense, my whole life has prepared me for podcasting. So podcasting is a matter of being quick on your feet, being able to communicate, intellectual curiosity you have to be able to ask someone who's in opera or fashion or primatology you know interesting questions that people want to hear and that's not a trivial task to to think of those not necessarily on the fly but to think of them at all and i also uh, have been fortunate in being visible so one of my theories is it's not who you know it's who knows of you and so a lot of people know of me because of my Macintosh background and Canva background, which lets me get a lot of interviews. There are lots of interviews I start and they say, you know, I followed your career. And I'll give you a, a real good example, which is John M. Chu. I interviewed John M. Chu. He's the director of Crazy Rich Asians and Into the Heights, the Lin-Manuel mm -hmm. Miranda musical. And the interview started by him saying, yeah, you know, uh, when I was a high school kid, you were working at Apple and I love my Macintosh. I used to read all your articles. I used to go to Macworld Expo, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I think this is John freaking M. Chu. He's like crazy rich Asians director. He knows who I am. That's how I get interviews with John M. Chu. Yeah. So you're passionate about podcasting. You think, and you're, you're also passionate about Canva. Oh, you've yeah. been involved for seven years. Why are you passionate about Canva, and why have you been the chief evangelist for seven years, which is a long time? Because I, I am into the democratization of anything. So I would say that Macintosh was the democratization of computing. I started a company called Garage.com that was the democratization of investing in privately held companies. And Canva is the democratization of design. So you don't have to buy or rent Photoshop, spend weeks learning it. You don't have to you know, put in a RFP for a designer, 
stand in line in your design department hoping to get some of their attention. This is you boot Canva and you go. Can't be more democratized than that. So I'm into democratization. How did you discover it? How did you get involved? What was the catalyst? Uh, There's another great story. So (laughs) I was active in Twitter from pretty much the start. And my theory back then was that every tweet needs to have a picture. And so I work with a woman named Peg Fitzpatrick. And she discovered Canva and was using Canva to make the graphics for our tweets. And Canva noticed I was using Canva because they can see, you know, sort of the pictures and the forms I was using. And so they reached out to me via a tweet. And it just so happens, thank you, God, that I noticed that at mention. Because, you know, it's not that easy to notice an at mention because there's a lot Mm -hmm. of at mentions. Anyway, I noticed it. And I asked Peg, you know, is this the company we use to make graphics? She said, yes. I said, do you like the product? She said, yes. I said, do you think I should help them? And she said, yes. And so I helped them. And the rest is history. So they found me. You know, if people think that I was looking at the vast array of opportunities in Silicon Valley and selected Canva, they'd be wrong. (laughs) Canva found me. It's a great Twitter story. It is a great Twitter story. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you do, Guy, as chief evangelist? Chief evangelist for anything is, first of all, the, the word evangelism comes from a Greek term meaning bringing the good news. So what an evangelist does is bring the good news. I brought the good news of Macintosh. It increases people's creativity and productivity. I am bringing the good news of Canva. It's democratizing design, making everyone a better communicator. So chief evangelist is primarily an outward focus symbol of the good news and how this good news can improve your life. Should more companies have chief evangelists? Well, it depends if their product is good and <laughs> it really does make life better. But if it, if it does, yes. What do you think the impact is in the culture of a company like Canva with someone like you involved as a chief evangelist? I mean, what impact does that have on the culture? Because the way you decide, you bring the good news of the company to other people, right? Yeah. And I, I think in so many companies, they, they don't engage their own employees enough in trying the products, evangelizing the products, mm-hmm. talking about the products with their, in their neighborhood or with their friends and family. And I think when that doesn't happen, that's a problem because the people then don't believe in what you're doing. Right. So I'd just like you to speak a bit about the impact it has in the culture of having someone like yourself involved as a chief evangelist. In my case, um, what I brought to Canva in the early days was visibility and credibility, right? So because of my work at Apple, because of my work in Silicon Valley, my books, my writing, my speaking, and all of the above, I was very visible. And so when I went to Canva, I think people sat up and took notice, like, why would Guy go to this company in Sydney, Australia, of all opportunities in the world that he probably has? So it helped them build visibility and credibility in fundraising and in customer acquisition. But I will tell you that, you know, the more successful Canva becomes, the less important I am. Because right now, Canva doesn't need me. Canva has such credibility and so much momentum, I couldn't hurt it if I tried. And, and so, uh, you know, one lesson there is um, your role changes. And 
I bet there are millions of people who use Canva. I bet the bulk of people who use Canva never heard of Guy Kawasaki. But that wasn't true seven years ago. And to get from seven years ago to where we are today, you had to have me in the middle. Or I don't know if you had to, but it was good to have me in the middle. You've written 15 books. Which book was the most difficult for you? Oh, shit, they're all difficult. They're just difficult in different ways. Someone said, I don't know who, uh, that the only thing worse than writing a book is not writing a book. And someone else also said that writing a book is like opening a vein and pouring your blood onto the page. And I, I, th those are too little dramatic, but I kind of feel that way. And uh, I, no one is more surprised than me that I've written 15 books, starting in 87 to today. So, you know, 25 years, no, 35 years. Uh, I guess it's one every two or three years. I, I, I never would have predicted that either. I, when I wrote my first book, The Macintosh Way, I thought, oh, this is it. I've said everything I have to say. Well, although some people say I've written one book 15 times, uh, it's, it's been a great, great experience. And I, if any of you are authors out there, I want to give you a piece of advice about writing a book, which is that you should write a book when you have something to say. Duh. As opposed to you want to position yourself as a thought leader and you want to use it for credibility to get more speaking and more consulting or to increase your visibility. When your PR people convince you or try to convince you to write a book, you know you're going down the wrong path. <laughs> the only reason to write a book is because you have something to say. If you don't have anything to say, no matter how good it might be for you, don't do it. I think a book should be an end in itself. It's not a means to an end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you pick up a book and it's written by someone who didn't write it for a specific reason and have a unique voice, you can tell it within 10 pages. Yeah. That's why I have many unfinished books. <laughs> Do you have another book you're working on now, Guy? Nope. Uh, podcasting has taken mm -hmm. the place of writing in my life. Although I will tell you that I could now write a book called how to be remarkable based on these interviews. Mm -hmm. um, you should I do that. Consider that. You should I do consider that. that. Well, if I get a seven-digit advance, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> then I'll write <laughs> that <good>. book. <laughs> so when you think about, you've done over a hundred episodes of Remarkable People. Yeah. I know everyone is wonderful in its own way, but is there one that really stands out in terms of its relevance to you personally, or one that when you yeah. reflect back on it? just rises to the top it's the one that every wednesday i release that's the best one I, i'll tell you a, a kind of a story so I, I obviously i'm a surfer and i've had uh several boards made by bob pearson of pearson arrow who is a legendary shaper and i asked him once you know is this the best board you ever shaped and he says, every time I shape a board for a customer, I tell them it's the best board I ever shaped. So uh, that's what I'm saying about my podcast. And it's, it's very difficult to answer that question because, you know, at the one hand, I have Jane Goodall, but I also have Angela Duckworth, and I have mm -hmm. Steve Wozniak, and I have Steve Wolfram, and I have Andrew Yang. And, you know, how do you, <laughs> how do you yeah. pick? Um, I, I have people who, I have a woman who started, um, 
some nationwide facilities to help families of kids with uh, Down syndrome. Well, I mean, that's kind of a moving story there. Uh, I just, it's, I don't know. If I asked you that question, what would you say? It's, uh... Oh, I, I, it's a hard question and probably not, it is an unfair question. I, I'd have trouble answering it too because they are all yeah. special. And I, I, there are two that I'm thinking about. One is a woman who ran into, she just felt her life had gotten flat. And how she kind of revived her creativity was a, mm-hmm. a great story. And I, I just related to it personally. And another one was um, a senior person at Pepsi mm-hmm. who lost his wife. And she had some lucid moments before she passed away and just told him three things that she'd like him to think about for the rest of his life. It was like, whoa. Yeah. Wow. You know, so I think that, I mean, every interview is wonderful, but sometimes there's things that just hit you personally at that point in your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I had a Ken Robinson, Sir Ken Robinson. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on my podcast, and he he passed away. I know. And he was particularly brilliant, I have to say. So. Uh, yeah, I spent a what? few days with him. The oh, week yeah? I left Procter and Gamble, I spent about five days with him. Yeah. And very special, very special. He's a time. special guy. Yeah, he yeah. really is. Yeah. Well, what did you work on at Procter and Gamble? A little bit of everything. Oh, yeah. I mean, I started in brand management, you know, which is what they call marketing. And I worked in the food division, then cosmetics. And then I was sent to Eastern Europe and then Western Europe and then back to the headquarters. And I became the global marketing officer. And I, I left, I left when I was doing that. I just hadn't, I, I felt like I did everything I wanted to do and I wanted to change my life. But I had 25 years there and it was, uh, it was a great 20. The company believes in people and training yeah. and, and leadership. And so I, I, it was a, it was a, you know, very powerful experience for me. So when did you leave? I left 13 years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Those are the heydays. Yeah. My, my wife worked for Procter Gamble in field sales Oh my! in the Pacific Northwest. And you know what? She says it was great. Tra- Just like I say, jewelry manufacturing was great training. She says Procter Gamble was great training. I totally agree with it. Yeah. I have a theory that. Fundamentally in life, there's only two real functions. You got to either be making it or selling it. So if you can't make it, you better be selling it. <laughs> That's what Peter Drucker used to say, right? There's only <laughs> two things in business, right? Making it and selling it. The rest of it is yep. a cost. Yeah. Peter Drucker yeah. was the man. Yeah. Yep. As you think about the arc of your life and career, mm-hmm. I'd like you to leave our listeners with a few pieces of your wisdom. And, you know, given that this is the CMO podcast, a lot of people who are listening are marketing students. Yeah. You know, marketing people in companies, senior people. Okay. So. Okay. Some thoughts. Yeah. So uh, thought number one is your current customer probably can't tell you how to truly revolutionize your product or your service. They can tell you how to make it slightly better. They can tell you how to make an Apple II better. They cannot tell you how to invent a Macintosh. They can tell you how to make a Macintosh better, but they can't tell you how to make an iPhone, iPod, or iPad. So that has to come from someplace else. <laughs> if you're lucky, you have a Steve Jobs. <laughs> if you're not, I don't know. I don't know what you should do. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, I would also say that I think that the purpose of marketing is to create customers. It may be creating customers from your competition, or you may be creating customers who never 
would have considered themselves customers before. But it is about the creation of customers. That's what marketing does. And the third thought is uh, marketing is not Madison Avenue. Marketing, I think many people, I hope, is not true anymore. They equate marketing and advertising. Marketing is not advertising. Advertising is a slim part of marketing. Um, but I think many people think that the two are the same. Well, you could probably address this better coming from P&G, which was you know, the world's greatest marketer and advertiser. So Yeah, um, it's, it, was, it, it still is the world's largest advertiser, and it was when I was there. But P&G does not think about marketing as advertising. That's why they yeah. call it brand management. Right. Right. Because they think about building brands and you build brands by making great products and having great customer understanding and having a great culture that cares. Yep. And it's it's kind of that simple. I love Don. I just want you to know I love Don. <laughs> They'll love that. They'll love that you love Don. <laughs> no, really. I love Don. I have Don in every sink in my house. I have I wish I could buy Dawn by five gallons. Maybe there's someone listening from Procter & Gamble. There's like the five-gallon industrial size. I want to know how to buy that. You sound like Costco. They're always <laughs> asking for the big size. <laughs> no, it, hey, it, it's, it's meets your criteria. It is highly different. It's the best product by far. Yeah. And it's a, and it's a, and it's a great value, therefore. And, and, you know, the fact that um, bird sanctuaries use it to clean mm -hmm. Birds covered with oil? I mean, there cannot be any better marketing than that, right? That's basically saying our product is effective and safe. Holy cow, does it get better than that, huh? No, it's a brilliant move, and they've stuck with it over the years. It wasn't a stunt. So, Guy, is there, what are you looking forward to in 2022? Is there a surprising new chapter for you or more of the same? No, more of the same. I just... Uh, you know, one of the things that I've learned is um, the grass is seldom greener. You should just fertilize and water the grass you're standing on. <laughs> How's that? That's a good way to end the podcast. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you for this. It's, you're it's very been welcome. Marvelous and thoughtful and inspiring. You've been very generous. Thank you. You're very kind. That was my conversation with Guy Kawasaki. Three takeaways from this one for your business and life. The first one is. Join companies that have great products, or if you're starting a company, make sure your product is differentiated and high in value to its customers. Guy said marketing is about that simple. It's about getting behind a great product and letting people know about it. Second takeaway, career planning. I asked Guy for what was the red thread in his career, and he said there was none. His career, which is most amazing, was he followed passions. He followed ideas. He followed people he was interested in. It was serendipity in some ways, but he followed his heart and it led to a most wonderful life for Guy. Third takeaway, find something in your life that keeps you fresh, innovative, creative. Guy just loves podcasting. It's his most favorite thing to do in his life. It's the most favorite time in his career. So whatever you're doing for a job, find a way to keep yourself on the edge and happy and doing something you're passionate about. Bonus takeaway, it's never too late to learn to surf. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. 
And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.